Hi, I'm Gordon Lamp here, and welcome to the Real Finds Podcast, a podcast series where we interview key entrepreneurs, scientists, and activists who are shaping the commercial real estate industry, and as a result, our world. On today's podcast, we interview Vinny DiMiglio. Vinny is a senior vice president at Jones Lang LaSalle, who specializes in office space in Princeton and the central New Jersey market. On the podcast, we talk tips and tricks to success in the real estate industry, the state of the office market, return to office, the hub and spoke method, and flex work. It's well worth a listen. Hey, Vinny, thanks for hopping on the podcast today. You got it, Gordon. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to start off with the basics and uh, the basics that we need to understand about you is uh, who's Vinny? Vinny is a guy that doesn't like seeing a Jordan jersey behind you because um, <laughs> in, in my office, I have a Ewing jersey hanging up. And so um, I grew up painfully watching your Jordan torch my Knicks. But uh, I'll move past that for a moment. All right. All right. All right. <laughs> um, no, so, yeah, Vinny de I'm a senior vice president here at Jones Lang LaSalle. Uh, I sit in our Princeton, New Jersey office. Uh, I've been here in Princeton for um, personally my whole life, professionally since 2009. I graduated from a liberal arts college in Pennsylvania called Ursinus College in May of 2009 and like wondered, what do I do next? Where do I go from here? Um, and thankfully, uh, maybe about a month after graduation, the opportunity to get into commercial real estate presented itself. And I said, what the heck is that? I don't even know what they do. Um, but I sort of rolled the dice. I, I got hired, um, got my license, and that was August of 2009. So, uh, you know, this summer I'll be coming up on 14 years in the business. I've been focused on um, really the office sector the entire time. I split my business between uh, tenant rep deals and agency deals. I do a little bit of uh, sales when the opportunity presents itself, um, but with a pretty strict focus on, let's just call it the central New Jersey market that encompasses all of Princeton and some of the surrounding counties. So you're talking about getting into the business. What is life like in the commercial real estate business? Isn't that a loaded question? Um, so, <laughs> you know, I tell people that this is not the kind of business that people want to get into if they're not uh, really young and, and have an opportunity to just test the waters. Um, you're not going to make a lot of money for a long time. I was told getting into this business, it's going to take you three years to, to build a business and to start making some money. But I was 22 years old. I was living at home. I was single. Uh, I had a $20,000 draw. I was making less than $1,700 a month. But at 22, I was loaded, man. I, I was taking my friends out. I said, I got all this money. You know, let's go have some fun. Uh, and then quickly realize, you know, that doesn't really get you very far. So, you know, you have to essentially look at yourself as uh, an entrepreneur, as a sole proprietor. We work for these big organizations. Jones Lang LaSalle is one of the biggest and there are fantastic resources here and people that will support me in my endeavors and things that I want to do. But at the end of the day, I'm working for myself. Um, so I got to wake up and have that drive and have that tenacity and just overall passion for the business. Because if I decide to take the day off, no one's going to check in on me. No one's going to say, hey man, what are you working on? What are you doing? I, I got to push myself. So I grew up and uh, I've worked 
my entire life at a small to mid-sized boutique firm in Northern Illinois. So we have a strong network within Northern Illinois and Wisconsin, you know, uh, Iowa and, and uh, North, Northwest Indiana. But it's nothing like working at a junk Lang LaSalle or, or uh, Collier's. What, it's, what is it like working at a large global firm? Because I'm just kind of curious um, if you've sensed a, a big difference between maybe Collier's or Jones Lang LaSalle or, or, um, or some of the firms you worked at in the past. You worked at uh, Newmark? Yeah, it's a good question. So I got in the business, um, started with Newmark. But I look at my career in, in different phases, and they, they really reside with the companies that I worked for. So I didn't know what I was doing at Newmark. I was brand new. By the time I left, I was three and a half years in the business, and I, I think was just starting to figure it out. So didn't know enough about who Newmark was and what they were offering. I knew they were a big global company. They had a lot of really great things to offer, um, but, but that, was, that was kind of it. When I got to Collier's, they had more of this entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, they were made up of a collection of smaller boutique firms from around the country. And it seemed like that entrepreneurial spirit was was strong and alive uh, throughout the organization. So we were able to do more things a little bit differently. I started writing blogs and I started more on social media and getting into some creative uh, marketing for some of the um, listings that I was working on. And it felt like I was able to get my hands dirty and I really grew my business uh, over that six and a half years there, but started to realize that maybe that that particular company didn't have the same reach that some other companies do. And I'm starting to look around the market. I like to go out and hunt for my business. Uh, I don't sit back. I don't wait for the phone to ring. I don't wait for an email saying, hey, Vin, here's some inbound business. Why don't you go work on this? That's just icing on the cake if it happens to happen. But as I'm surveying the market, I'm saying, you know, there are other organizations that are really um, cleaning up and they have market share. And maybe I think for this next phase of my career, which hopefully is the longest phase of my career, maybe I want, maybe I want to go join. And um, JLL presented an opportunity. And once I got here, I realized, wow, they're doing a lot of things differently than Newmark and Collier's. And I can only imagine, you know, the CBs and Cushman's of the world. Um, and so far I'm here, uh, we just celebrated four years in January. It's been a weird four years, as you can imagine, um, based on where the world has been and everything that we've been through. Um, but it's a great organization. There's a lot of different technology and services that we have offering here that, um, I've never seen before, which I think really sets us apart from the field. So, um, you know, like you don't know until you get there, right? It's hard to know what a company has to offer until you're there. So I'm glad I made the move. So obviously you've been successful in commercial real estate. Otherwise you wouldn't have been recruited by multiple top firms. What are ultimately the strategies that you could give a younger broker for success? Because I think there's a lot of mysticism behind like what actually creates a successful career. And I think that ultimately there's really just a couple of key things that factor into pretty much every successful broker's path? Well, I think you have to have a passion for what you do. It's probably impossible to be successful at anything unless you enjoy what you're doing. I tell people I don't 
wake up in the morning with this, you know, like, oh my God, I can't wait to go be a real estate broker today. Right. But I enjoy what I do. Um, it affords a lot of flexibility. Um, there's obviously uh, earnings potential that you can't get in a lot of different places. Uh, again, that entrepreneurial spirit of, of sort of having my own business. And, you know, if I want to make more money, I need to be on the phones today. I need to be meeting with people today. I need to be working more hours today. You know, I drive myself. I mean, I was an athlete growing up and um, there was just something about getting in the weight room and, and training, you know, and understanding that if I want to be better at what I'm doing, I need to spend more time in here perfecting that craft. And I had a passion for that. And so I think you have to have that similar passion. Um, you also just have to have patience. You know, if, if you're, you know, a weightlifter and you want to bench 300 pounds, you're not getting on that bench and benching 300 pounds on day one. You're going to start at a hundred pounds and you're going to go 110 and 120. You don't go from hundred to 200, right? There's incremental growth. And for young people getting into the business, if they haven't been around it, or if they haven't talked to enough people, I think they anticipate success almost immediately. And there are so many nuances to this business. And this is what you can't tell a young person who's not in the business. They don't want to hear it because they don't know that they need to hear it. But it's understanding the life cycle of a deal and how you get paid. So there are people coming into this business saying, in the next 12 months, I'm going to be making money. I'm going to be successful. That's fantastic. But the life cycle of a deal can take you 12 months from the time you've found a prospect, somebody who agrees to work with you, to the time you sign that lease or sell that site. Sales are going to take you even longer, but that's a different topic. We're talking about leasing. And then you have to go get paid. And typically you get paid half on signing, a lot of times, not always, and then the other half on commencement. And who the heck knows when that's going to be? Yeah, I mean that. I mean that's definitely something I think is a shock. I, I can say this definitively. My wife is in, in corporate law, right? So for her, it's it's that typical bi monthly paycheck that rolls in, and she'll sometimes be like, "Gordon, you did a fifteen thousand foot deal. Where's where's the cash?" And and I'll say, "Honey, it's going to be about nine months." And she's like, "And she's like, what?" And you're like, no, it's going to be about nine months until you see that paycheck roll in. And I think it's a shock to some people who are in a much more predictable cash cycle industry. But um, we have to be driven by more than just the immediate paycheck. And I think providing long-term value in our careers, right? And then ultimately, that that money does come into your bank account. It just sometimes takes a few months, right? Listen, it, it can take a really long time because if your fee's due in nine months, that means you're sending the invoice at month eight and then it's not there at month nine because they have 30 days to pay and then you're chasing them for another 30 days and then it gets stuck in the system and you're like, oh, I'm going to get paid out in two weeks or 30 days. I, it just, it really can take forever. So, you know, for young people listening to this that may be in the business or thinking about getting into the business, for me, it's all about building your pipeline and and, you know, and by the way, making mistakes. I think there are a lot of people focused on wanting to do big deals. And that's great. I think we should all have aspirations and want to do the biggest and best business that we possibly can. 
But I personally, and I know not everybody agrees with this, I'm a firm believer in hitting singles and doubles. Um, I do think you have to delegate if you can build a team and have someone else go and, and ultimately run those smaller transactions for you. I think that's really um, important. But if you're young, go do as many deals as you can. Get those repetitions in. Going back to the training, get your repetitions in, learn your mistakes, build from there, build your pipeline, get those smaller checks to come in just to get that cash flow situation started. And yes, it's still going to take a few years, even if you follow those rules, but all of a sudden around year three, you're going to go, wow, look at my accounts receivable. Look at everything that I'm going to be taking in the next few months or the next year. Look at all the deals and clients that I have that I'm working on with. I mean, that's critical because it's such a psychological um, drain at times to be wondering where that next client's going to come from. Look, I couldn't agree more. I mean, um, I, I think our whole firm has made an, uh, you know, a hundred years of business off of hitting singles. And um, particularly if you have a good support team around you, getting those twos, those those fours, those eights, uh, just on a regular basis um, can be an absolute godsend, particularly because I, I think there's a, a idea among young brokers that when they're reaching out and they're doing a, you know, a 3000 foot office deal, right? They think, oh man, it, this is a 3000 foot office deal. But often that 3000 foot office deal or that, you know, flex deal or industrial deal, that's, that's a smaller deal. That's them now. But 10 years from now, they might be at 10 or 20 or 30. I mean, within even our own portfolio, we had deals that five years ago were in 4,000 feet. And next thing you know, five years down the road, they're looking for 15 or they're looking for 20. So it's just about developing that book of business based on good relationships, uh, good professional services. And ultimately, if you're checking the right boxes, I think long term, you're going to be successful. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people, you know, there, there are so many anecdotes and stories that guys like me and you can share from being around for a long time. One of the ones that I like to share is a, a an attorney. She was actually just under 3000 feet. And I, I was doing my thing and I was cold calling her and I eventually got her on the phone and she said, um, I've got two and a half years off of my lease. You know, why don't you come in? We, we can chat. And I looked at her lease and I said, you're overpaying by a lot. Yes. Right. Um, I said, man, but you got two and a half years left on your lease. I go, would you maybe extend it, make it a, a 10 year lease? Well, why would I do that? I said, if I can get your rent down by like, I don't know, 20%, 30%, would you do it? Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm telling you, Gordon, within 30 days, that deal was done. Okay. I think the fee was $30,000. I was happy. She was happy. I then get a call from her. She refers me to somebody. They needed 12,000 feet. They end up signing a 10-year deal for 12,000 feet that I represented them on. And then subsequently, she expanded. I did that deal and then renewed. So that little 3,000 square foot deal that everybody wants to poo-poo has led to significant revenue for my business. Oh, I, yeah. Right? I can't, I can't not look at it as important. And just to go back to the sports analogy, I'm a Derek Jeter fan. That guy hit more singles and doubles than most, right? 
and he had he also had some of the biggest home runs and triples um you know that anybody's ever had in their careers and he ended up being one of the best to ever do it one of the top hitters to ever do it and nobody ever remembers him as just hitting these big home runs all the time yeah the the captain is a great example um and uh going to kind of a, a different topic one of the biggest reasons why i wanted to have you on is that i've found that there are regions of the country that have great similarity particularly in certain asset classes um chicago is very similar for example in industrial to atlanta um but for the office sector in particular i'd say the north new jersey market matches a lot of what chicago's collar county's market uh, has traditionally been in terms of a large metro area large pharmaceutical hub um, it's a very unique area in terms of that but it's very similar in terms of uh, the similarities with new jersey and so i was curious if you could touch on what's the state of the north new jersey market right now because i think we would have a lot of potential advice to give others who are looking in both markets because of the similar similar nature of the two yeah no i love that question so i sit in what i call central new jersey there's a battle between people that even live here that like to say well there's no such thing as central it's either north or south but it's not so central new jersey has a lot of similarities to where i reside in princeton so I'm going to talk about the market that I know, but I think I'm going to hit on all the same. I think you're going to hit on similar trends. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, we, we have a 25, 26 million square foot office market, which is one of the largest suburban office markets in the country. It's not the biggest. It just happens to be one of the biggest. And it is driven largely by the pharmaceutical companies that you mentioned. Um, the, uh, we're equidistant to both um, New York City and Philadelphia. We have a great transit um, uh system that easily get you to and from. We have the great hospital systems with Penn, uh, Capital Health, um, um, Robert Wood Johnson, a bunch of big hospitals. And then probably the biggest and most important here is Princeton University. Princeton University is the absolute most important driver of economic activity in this part of the state. Um, there are going to be plenty of people that want to be here because Princeton University is here. Uh, they also happen to be the largest um, landowner in this market. Um, so they're constantly, uh, whether they're buying buildings for their own expansion or whether they're involved in some additional developments that potentially need the broker's help, leasing space for a bunch of different, um, uh, you know, opportunities that they have. So, you know, without them, we're not what we are. And so, um, you know, there's a ton of different factors that make Princeton unique. Uh, but also similar to some of the other regions around the country that you're talking about. And I tell people, if you look at the 08, 09 uh, downturn, and if you look at what's happened over the last couple of years, there's never these dramatic peaks and valleys um, because we have a great foundation in this market, a great support system, so that when things go a little bit um, awry, you know, there's something to pull it all back in. So um, I'm very fortunate to sit in Princeton. Uh, I grew up here, like I said. Uh, I reside here uh, right outside of Princeton in Robbinsville, New Jersey, and um, just really proud to serve this market because of all the reasons that I've mentioned.
Yeah. So, I mean, it's such a mixed bag, right, Gordon? Like there's almost nobody has any consistency. You can't say everybody I'm working with, everybody's in a flight to quality like mode right now, or everybody's downsizing. Nobody really fully knows what they want to do. There's not one thing I can point to that everybody's doing. But having said that, I happen to have a listing that was formerly owned by a group for a long time that sort of broke up. Um, they really mismanaged this building. It was a 150,000 square foot, um, you know, class A office building. And they sold it at a, at a nice discount. A client of mine bought the building. They put $4 million into renovating this building. In my opinion, is now the nicest building in that segment of the market. In the last two years, we have signed 12 new leases. Who's signing 12 new leases in the last two years, right? And we have a substantial lease that, fingers crossed, is going to get done soon, which make it a lucky 13. And it's because the new owner spent the money, created an atmosphere that makes people excited to want to come in. We have a gorgeous cafeteria, fitness center, shared conference room, game room, bike share program. Uh, I mean, you name it, we have it. And for anybody that's come to the building, they recognize the value that having that atmosphere and what it creates for their employees. We're trying to get people to work in the office. You can't force them back in just because you want to say you have to come back in. You have to create an environment that's going to make them want to come in. So to your question, we are seeing that flight to quality. I'm concerned for the owners of the class B segment that don't want to reinvest. But having said that, there are going to be plenty of people that simply don't want to pay the rent. They're going to want the cheap deals, right? Yeah, of course. I mean, I can say within our county, I sit in Lake County right now, which is the largest of the collar counties around Chicago. And there are essentially four buildings that I would really consider class A. Um, and those four buildings are well leased. Um, and they continue to be well leased. And if anything, there's a greater divide that is being created between the leasing patterns of those four buildings and the other buildings that sit in the market. Um, uh, big tenants, whether they be size of the company or size of the space that they lease, or is it a lot of smaller ones? I'd say it's overwhelmingly tenant agnostic in terms of those, those four buildings. Some of them are large tenants, full floor. Some of them are, uh, you know, your fives, your tens. Some of them are small executive suites that are, you know, 500 square feet, right? But what they all have in common is quality. And I think that's at least what we're seeing in our market. Um, I'm sure there are some market in the United States or globally where that's not the case, but um, I would bet that it's not too different in, in New Jersey. Look, I, I love getting into the nitty gritty on things. It, if you're a mechanic, you really got to figure out the components of how something works. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to fix it or build it or whatever you want to do. We have to really get into the nitty gritty. We can't have surface level conversations with our clients without, you know, really being able to help them. Right? We talk about adding value, right? So I'm looking at buildings going, why are those buildings successful? It, it's, it's hard to look at a tenant 
and say, why is another tenant successful in figuring out their space needs? It's, it's again, it's a mixed bag. Everyone's going to have different reasons for why they want what they want. But looking at, right? Oh, yeah. Look, looking at the landlords, I mean, like you hear the, this like uptick in my voice. Like this is how I would talk to my landlord clients. Like these are the things that we need to look at. Who is being successful? What are they doing? Why are they doing it? And the building that I happen to be sitting in is um, it's a three-story, 80,000 square foot class A office building that was built sometime around 2013, let's just say. Um, it's, you know, a 10-year-old building is a brand new building, right? Incredibly, the foresight that this owner had. So he had an 80,000 square foot tenant who wanted to lease this building. Who would say no to that, right? He said no. He said, I'm concerned that if I put all my eggs in that one basket, if that tenant ever downsizes, what am I going to do? That tenant where they went, they ultimately did downsize. They put their space on the market for sublease. This was all pre-COVID. Instead, he leased this relatively small, only 80,000 square foot class A building to whatever it is, a dozen different tenants. It's 100% leased. And not only is it 100% leased, it has one of the highest rents in the market. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, look, um, I mean, we can tell war stories all day, um, but I'll add at least one more. The, the building that I currently sit in, in the mid-2010s, we got back from a large Fortune 500 company uh, with a landlord that I've been working with for, for ages, right? And so there was a big question, and the question was pretty simple. It was the building was 95% vacant, right? And um, the question was, first of all, um, do they even want to continue with it in a you know mid-2010s office market, right? Which is, I don't know how central New Jersey was, but the market was absolutely atrocious here. Um, and they said, we have a choice. We can either put more money into the building and sell it, Potentially, once we invest and and get more, or you know, maybe hold it, or we can just absolutely pitch it. And they ended up putting two point two million dollars into a building in a market that everyone thought they were crazy in. And now we're seventy five percent leased, uh, with the remaining tenant locations getting very close to being leased. And I think. Um, there's often a really deep struggle with your typical landlord. And I'm sure you, you deal with this on a regular basis. And it's so hard to tell somebody that they have to spend money to make money. But I think that's the world that we're living in, particularly the post-COVID world. Because ultimately, and, and I'm going to uh, bring this into a question, it's all about placemaking, right? At, we have to have a reason to come into the office. And I'm, I'm sure that that's something that you're seeing as well in the, in the New Jersey market. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to give somebody the advice to spend money, <laughs> which is always hard, <laughs> which is always hard, you got to put your money where your mouth is, uh, especially if you're the ones that are representing them. And sometimes I believe there's only so much we can do as an agent. You know, I kind of look at it like this, as long as I'm doing the things that I a promised I'm going to do, but B, believe that I need to do to be successful for, for everybody. 
that the world just has a way of of giving okay so i'm making my cold calls i'm knocking on doors i'm talking to brokers I'm, i got my marketing campaign going um i got my social media campaign going maybe i'm not getting any direct benefit but yet the, the world's noticing and, and i'm you know p- things are going to happen from it so um when I say to a landlord, I think you should invest money, I'm going to I'm gonna really put that effort in and do all the things that I think I need to do, if not more. Um, but it is interesting because I think everybody needs to hear multiple sides to being successful in the real estate business, not only as a broker, but as an owner. And what kind of asset classes do you need to own to be successful? Um, and what I thought about when you were, you were saying that was, I have this incredible client. He's my longest tenure client for about a dozen years. Um, Where I started with him was a single story, 77,000 square foot office building that I don't think it's fair to call it class C, but it's also not fair to call it class B. It's got a great location, but it's, you know, a 40 year old building that was leased by the state of New Jersey for 30 years. State of New Jersey pulled out of everything they had there. All of a sudden, 50,000 square feet of empty space in a building in the space that you know, mostly hadn't been touched other than probably the roof, some mechanicals, and et cetera. So I took this assignment as a young broker because I just wanted to learn. I wanted to take anything that somebody would give to me. He's not only one of my best clients, he's, he's I consider him a friend. We have leased that building to 100%. It doesn't have a single amenity in the building. But he's just a good guy. He's actually a great guy. He's a great owner. He cares about his tenants. So he's put money in. Every space has been, you know, retrofitted when it's, when it's, uh, when it's leased, he pays his commissions. He replaces the HVAC units on every deal. I mean, he does all the things that he needs to do, but he, listen, he didn't have to go and spend millions and millions of dollars, you know, um, replacing the skin of the building and, and changing just, you know, top to bottom, every component of the building, you provide a great service that people recognize you're going to be successful. So do do I? Yeah, I think there's absolute truth to that. The flight to quality definitely goes beyond amenities. It can be quality in a a wide range, be it, you know, your property management group being on their game, be it uh, proactive, proactive uh, representation in terms of, meeting your client's needs on time and, and just providing a generally high quality landlordship. Right. Um, and, and I wanted to double down and, and ask more about the New Jersey market in particular, based on something that we've been seeing in the Chicago market. And one of the other things that we've been seeing consistently is kind of the hub and spoke model has been kind of spinning out of greater Chicagoland and, and our, our, the loop downtown. And I was curious if that's something you've been seeing in the New Jersey market as part of kind of the more of the flex work and more of the uh, return to office trend. Hub and spoke is something that we thought we were going to see a lot of um, based on our proximity to, to, like I said before, New York City and Philadelphia. Um, Assuming that at the time, you know, people were nervous to get on the train and be crammed in there with people and, you know, fears of getting sick and that. That was going to be the driver of why people didn't want to come to the office. And you're going to now have to have this, like we're calling it like a spoke, right? Other offices scattered throughout the state to meet the demand of where people were living. It made perfect sense. We haven't seen it to the extent that we thought we would. 
We did show space to an insurance company last week, though. That is exactly what they're doing. They do not have any presence here in Princeton, but they happen to have a couple of employees and now they need to open an office for them. So they're doing this all over the place. Um, and it was funny because I'm like, wow, finally, someone, someone's doing this. Um, but outside of just Hub and Spoke, there has been good expansion. Um, Jones Lang LaSalle represents Moderna and Moderna, you know, expanded up in, in Boston and said, you know, how do we go find more talent? You know, we have to, we have to grow and we can't continue to do that here. And so they came down to Princeton. I was lucky enough to represent them on their expansion here in Princeton. They opened a 15,000 square foot facility, brand new. Uh, they were also working down in DC at the time. I, I assume that they, you know, closed that transaction. Um, and so, you know, when you have a good market, that's got this great talent pool, you know, not only is it good for hub and spoke, but it's good for just regular expansion. And so, you know, if not for the pharmaceutical sector, I know this is not what you're asking, but, you know, I don't know where we would be, you know, from the data points as far as like our vacancy and our absorptions. I mean, pharma has been such a critical component to this market. And, um, you know, I put a lot of emphasis on Princeton University, but I think the pharma sector should get a, you know, uh, be recognized as well. Look, I think every city has their and every metro area has their uh, their titans. For us, it's food, pharma, and logistics. If it wasn't for those three, look, I'd be living in a cardboard box somewhere. I can tell you that. Um, but, but I, I think um, for every area, it's unique, right? So, um, trying to go to something that's a little more unique in terms of New Jersey itself. Um, one of the states, just like ours, that was the hardest hit by the lockdowns was, was New Jersey, right? Um, how have you seen generally the return to work movement? And do you see um, that there's a long-term future for folks still continuing to return to work? Or do you think we've kind of reached a stasis? It's such a polarizing topic. Um, and, and I happen to have very strong opinions on it. <laughs> and I, I, you can tell those opinions. That's fine. Listen, um, I, I had a great conversation with a client the other day and I said, man, I wish, I wish there were, there was a room of people to listen to the back and forth that we just had, because there was so much value that came from just two people in the business, one being an owner, one being me, just kind of putting our thoughts out there. And sometimes we can be scared to share those thoughts because you don't want to upset anybody. Right. Um, I worked at home just like a lot of people did during lockdowns. Um, you know, the first three months where we were just closed, um, JLL uh, returned to the office uh, in June of 2020. So we started to get back in. My wife was pregnant with our third, uh, our third child. So I had some concerns, you know, nobody was vaccinated yet. So I probably spent some more time at home, especially as we got towards the end of the pregnancy. And as a baby was born, I probably spent a couple more months and then um, we actually moved our office last year and we, we, we leased our own space uh, because we had the agency for the building that we were in. Uh, unfortunately, here in, in this township, which is West Windsor Township, um, that's also Princeton, Princeton Address, West Windsor Township. It's been painfully long uh, process to get permits. Uh, long story short, we were without an office for five months, so I had to go work from home. And I say all this because I know what it's like to work from home as a almost 36 year old with three kids uh, and a wife <laughs> and a dog. Okay. 
Um, For me personally, it's impossible. There is zero value for me to be home personally uh, during the workday. So much so my wife has said to me, go away. Um, (laughs) You make my life harder when you are here because you're trying to make sure that we're quiet when you're on a call right? Or you need a little bit of focus time. And, and like, I'd rather you just be at the office. That was really eye-opening for me because I thought I was almost doing a favor by being home and trying to lend a hand, but it really, it wasn't helpful. And then I realized really, really early on that not being around my peers, and this is specific to what we do in this industry and, and people who have similar roles to us, I learn more by listening to what's going on in the office and the conversations that are being had than I could possibly learn by sitting at home because we did the Zoom thing. And I think people got Zoom fatigue really, really quickly and they stopped, you know, participating in these calls and they were distracted by other things that were going on at home. So, you know, after the first three months at home, we had a meeting in the office and literally in 90 minutes or two hours, I walked away with more new information than I did in the three months working on Zoom. That's not me being funny. That's not me trying to put emphasis on something that's not true. That's just the reality. And so for me to be the best version of me, for my family, for myself, and for my clients, I have to be in the office. That's my personal opinion. I don't know how I get better and how I grow by working from home. Having said that, there is a large cohort of people who completely disagree. And that's where we have an issue is How do you get people back that have been working from home for the last three years that have gotten so used to being at home? They're used to the flexibility. They're used to having an opportunity to go outside and garden during the day or get that workout in or do the things that they couldn't do when they were working at home all the time, uh, at the office all the time. But I also agree that the flexibility is important to everybody. Look, man. I said earlier in this call that I've had flexibility since the day I started in this business. If I want to go pick up my dry cleaning at one o'clock, I can do it. Literally nobody, right? Is anybody going to check on you, Gordon, if you decide to run home to feed the dog? No one's going to check on me basically ever. Right. And and that's, that's, I think, really where we we get to the unique point of how um, the work from home movement has been kind of really twisted in a, in a weird way is like there are folks like my wife who's uh she's she's getting getting to almost her seventh year in law at a, at a pretty large corporate firm when the pandemic started she had she was already you know she was already almost at five years she had been to court she had done trials she she didn't need the support network of having a senior attorney around um but then what's interesting is she's gone into the office and she's been in a circumstance where she um, has seen younger brokers, or sorry, not brokers, younger attorneys who have come in and they've been in the business for a year, two years, and they've never had that in-office interaction. And they're just te- honestly terrible at doing what it is to be a corporate attorney because they've never had that network, never had that experience of working with people. I see brokers, young brokers. There are a couple offices around here that didn't have anybody in the office for um, over a year. And 
they still are kind of in a very flexed work situation. And there'll be brokers who are, you know, 20, 21, 22, 23. And their canvassing, it's just, it's sloppy. It's terrible. You see them come to our buildings and you're just like, come on guys. Like it's one thing if you're canvassing our buildings and you're doing a good job. It's another thing if you're making all the rookie mistakes. And I don't know if I could have started off in the industry from work from home. And I think that that's the biggest thing that blows my mind about the whole work from home movement is look, if you're 50 years old or you're 40 years old and you've been in the business or a business for 10, 15 years, work from home is fine for you. I think in a lot of ways, um, I don't know how you train staff and I don't know how you develop as a young professional when you don't have that network around you, because there's years and years of institutional knowledge when you hop into an office that rubs off on folks. And that's something that I think is surely lacking with the work from home. Well, look, I'm, I'm glad you said it because uh, I met with an attorney last week, a prospective new client, and we talked about that. And, and, and I said, it's, it's going to be an issue with the knowledge gap. That, that's what we're going to deal with is these young folks who are not getting the mentorship and not learning because people aren't in the office collectively. And uh, I know somebody who has been in, in their industry for four decades. They're in their 60s. They have an hour and a half commute each way. And before COVID, they were going into the office maybe two days a week. And early on in their career, they were going into the city, commuting by train up at 4 a.m. for like 13 years. They really put their time in. They went in. And at first I said, you've earned it. You want to work from home. You work from home. But you know what? Then I realized, think of all the phenomenal information that they can impart, wisdom that they can impart on the young people. Not even just the young people, guys our age in their 30s and 40s, right? We need that too. We need to be learning oh, yeah. constantly. And listen, I'm not about to tell that person, I think you should go into the office, but <laughs> but it, that's where I think it's like, it's a little selfish. It's a little self-serving um, to be like, look, I'm just going to work from home. Why do you need to work from home? What is your situation? Because of COVID, I have a fully functioning office at home that I really enjoy. In the morning before I leave, I get a little bit done. At night, I'll get a little bit done. But I believe in separation. I don't bring my computer into my bed. It's not on the couch with me. Like I need that time mentally, which I think is something that young people in this country are struggling with significantly with any sort of, you know, mental disorder, anxiety, depression, and we're wondering what's going on. Look, you're not meant to work 24-7, okay? And by being at home, you have no separation of church and state. You wake up and man, you're on and it doesn't stop, right? So you need that separation. But you know what? I also don't believe you're working. I don't believe you're working the whole time. I've heard the stories. I've heard my friends and I've heard people talk about how my employer thinks I'm working. I'm really not. I got some, right. I got a software that makes it look like I'm working. Yeah. I'd like to get to our final four. Sure. It's been a great conversation thus far and I'd love to have you back, Vinny. Um, so let's start off with the first question of our final four. It's one of my favorites. Um, it's where do you see the future of the office market going? Oof. Um, you know, office isn't going to go anywhere. Uh, as we just outlined, I think there is uh, a ton of uh, 
value that the office provides, it's going to just set a new a new bar. I mean, after the 0809 recession, you know, we had these very high levels of vacancy and people were laid off and companies shrunk their space. But then that was like a new starting point for them. So, you know, people grow, they hire, right? People are going to need more space moving forward. So they're just going to reset, take what they think they need, and then grow from there. So I think it's going to be a bit of a struggle the next uh, 12 to 24 months while, you know, we kind of continue to figure out this return to office or work from home model. And again, as these leases start to roll, people are going to have to make a decision on what they want to do. The hardest thing is going to be able to be figuring out how much space they actually need because originally uh, during, you know, the early stages of COVID and, and people wanting to be home, we said, well, as you come back, like, you know, you can work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and the other person can work Thursday, Friday, and you'll share desks. Now people are saying, well, we really do actually see the importance of being together and we all want to be in at the same time. So now, yeah, yeah. now you can share desks, right? So it's going to be uh, just sort of a, a reimagining of what the office is and why we're coming together. So more collaborative areas, maybe fewer private offices, more open spaces. And so that might uh, ultimately become a smaller footprint, but not drastically, I don't think. So that's my way of saying, I think we're going to be fine. It's just going to take a little bit of learning to get there over the next couple of years. Look, I, I wholeheartedly agree within our um, uh, office park right here, a, a building that we manage the park for. Uh, you just look right out the window, that direction is uh, Zebra's um, Midwest headquarters. So I know they have a, a location out in uh, New York, New York, New Jersey, but um, they've, they've taken that model. It's three days a week. There are two days that everyone has to be there for. Um, there's a day that is allowed to flex move and you can't take both Monday and, uh, and Friday off. So um, I think there's a lot of flexibility going forward. And um, I, I, think, I think you're definitely right on that. Um, going, going on, the, on the next topic of our final four, uh, this is, I think, gonna be a particularly meaningful one. Uh, from you because you've had such a successful career and really grown like a rocket ship in your career early on. Um, and you would have great advice for a lot of the young brokers that are starting out. What if you could give like a one minute little quick speech to a young Vinny, what would be your, your two cents and, and how to uh, have a successful career? I always thought that I put in the hours when I was younger and I realize now that I didn't. I mean, I've always worked hard. Uh, my father's an immigrant. I grew up in a pizzeria pouring sodas at four years old and wiping down tables. I've always understood the value of hard work. Shaking a hand and looking somebody in the eye, coming to work with your face washed and being prepared, having your suit on, having that confidence. Those are the things that I've always done that I think is a very simple foundation to being successful. But getting into the office at 8.30, and staying there until six, Monday through Friday, going to bed at 11 p.m., that that doesn't cut it. I find myself now as a married man with kids getting up way earlier than I ever would have imagined, right? <laughs> if I want to get everything done in a day, I'm up at 5.25. I'm in bed by 10, 10.30 would be very late for me. I try to be asleep by 10.30. So I wish as a 22 to 25-year-old 
that very specific segment of my career that I was basically out the door by 6.30 and maybe walking back in at 6.30, 7 o'clock. Um, I think I would have got a lot more done. I probably would have built my business a little bit faster. But again, I had no complaints with what I did. But if I, I mean, it worked. Like it worked. I, I'm here. I'm still here. I'm thriving. I had my best year in my career last year. That's saying a lot. Um, but I wish I put more hours in when I had the opportunity because young Vinny did not know what finding my future wife, how, you know, how that changes my schedule, yeah. you know, getting married, buying a house, having kids, you don't have the same amount of time at this part of your career. So you want to really double down early on. But for anybody that has kids, they'll, they'll probably laugh at this. I've said earlier, you don't know what you don't know. Someone's trying to give you advice and they're listening to me now going, I don't even know what that means. I don't even know why you, you, you wanted to get in early. My, one of my best friends said to me, he had his first son a few months before we did. He said, whatever you do, don't get the onesies that button, get the ones that zipper. But it was like in one ear out the other. I didn't know why that was important until I was there trying to button that stupid onesie while the baby's kicking his legs and doing whatever. I'm like, wow, the zipper up. Now I know what he was trying to tell me. So, you know, I think too many people are going to listen to this and then remember it in a few years and go, now I remember what that guy was trying to tell me. Um, but if you really can listen to this, just spend more time, you know, perfecting your craft early on. You'll, you'll be glad you did. Well, we have our first on the way. So. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. So we are picking out baby clothes. And now you know. Number one, rec number one recommendation that uh, I received was get the, get the magnet button. Magnets and, are good too. And, and they're like, they're like, if, if you can't get the magnet buttons, you get the zipper. Get the zipper. But if you can't, if you can't get, get um, anything, you know, do not do the buttons. And so that's funny that I'm hearing. Oh, oh yeah, so, absolutely. Um, like we learn a lot from our friends, right? But I'd say some of the best places to get knowledge sometimes because it's the only place that's often available is from books. And I'm a voracious reader. Um, is there a business book or a lifestyle book that really shaped your career? And what should our listeners be um, reading? Well, the best advice I can give, and I will answer the question, but the best advice I can give is read, just read. It's amazing how much information is in books. And, and, and by the way, how much overlap from one book that's got nothing to do with another book, but they might talk about the same company, the same story, the same sort of nuanced information that you start putting pieces to this puzzle together and you, you get the bigger picture of like what's going on in these stories. But around the time I turned 30, I said, I really want to, I want to get into reading. I want to read a lot. And um, I've always been interested um, in picking up more autobiographies, um, just the people that have done it. They've found that success. Whatever it is that they did, I want to learn more about it. The first book that I happened to pick up was a, a, a Walt Disney biography written by Bob Thomas. Um, I happen to be a very big fan. You, you know it? No, no. I, I, I'm very yeah, curious. It's, I mean, yeah. look, whatever your opinion is of, of Disney, the, the company, and, um, you know, oh, it's a place you can go ride on Dumbo. There is a very long and complicated history with how – Walt Disney built that company and the failures that he had early on and just like the mental fortitude of him to push forward. 
And when you read, I'm not, I'm not going to become who he was. I'm not going to have the success that he had because almost nobody does. But if you can glean one or two pieces of information out of somebody's story and just put it into your life and your mental state, um, it can really help change your life. Um, so Steve Jobs, Ben Franklin, Abraham Lincoln, I've read all those books. They're fascinating, fascinating people that have had tremendous success and failures and learning from them has been a very big help. Right now, I happen to be reading a very simple one that comes up all the time. I almost couldn't believe that I hadn't read it yet. Um, it's how to win friends and influence business. Um, oh, you, you, haven't, you haven't read that? I just, I, I thought I had. It's a classic. I know. I, 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 sales book of all time. Right? I just figured I read it. And then I was like looking through my library and I'm like, why don't I have this book? Man, the stories that this guy tells through the book are fantastic. And um, there is a lot of really great information from there that I'm already like, I have to be doing this in my day to day. Um, so again, it's just like, there's just so much good information. Yeah, as, as you grow in, in your life, as you get busier, it might be harder to find that time to pick up a book. I love the way a book feels in my hand as I turn the page. When I close it, I can look at it and go, wow, look at everything that I just got through. And I just feel smarter and better as a person for having read a book. Some people can't stand it. That's totally fine, right? Um, but I would encourage anybody to just pick up any book, any book at all, start there and 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 move your way up. Look, at, at the very least, I would say for all the folks out there who maybe don't love to read, at least get an audiobook because because God, God knows that um, long form content, not only is it much better for your brain in terms of being able to keep your attention for much longer and hone your brain in that regard, but it, it really helps change the way in which your brain interacts with the world. And so, uh, look. Uh, multiple great book selections there, and uh, we'll be sure to put those on the list for our readers. Um, the last question that we're going to get to is my favorite question of all, and it's the whole reason why I created the podcast, because I find in the real estate world, we live in our own little bubbles, right? Be it bubbles of your firm, bubbles of your region, bubbles of your class, uh, asset class area, and as a successful broker, Vinny, I'm sure you know a lot of amazing commercial real estate professionals or people who are adjacent to the industry. And uh, I'd love to know who you would recommend to hop on the podcast next. So um, there are a ton of really great people. It's funny. I was on another podcast for guys that are ba they're based out in Kentucky. It's a uh, He's a real estate broker. And oh, I, oh, I, I know those guys. Yeah. I'm actually going to be on the podcast, the real estate Academy. So they're great guys. Um, Raphael. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. He reached out to me and it's funny as I listen, cause I'll, I'll listen to their episodes. I know so many of the people that are his guests. I'm like, and it's probably the people that are more involved in social media that you, that we're seeing every day. Uh, but some of the um, people that I've seen on there that I know, uh, Jeremy Noyer, who's now uh, Jones Lang LaSalle broker, he's a he's a great guy. He's been really successful. Um, he's somebody that you should talk to. Michael Beckerman, um, this guy is on a uh, uh, path to want to change the world um, through environmental sustainability through real estate. Um, so that's a really really interesting topic, and he's just a really uh, outgoing guy who you know has a lot of passion for what he does. 
Um, and I mean, look, the list goes on and on, but if I give you just two names, I'll give you those two. I think, I think two names is great because they're both good names as well. So um, on that, Vinny, the second most important question we ask before uh, we uh, wrap things up is what's the best way that someone wants to get in contact with you? So like we got a client who reaching out who might want to be in the Princeton market or you got a young broker who wants to maybe reach out and, and get a tip. Uh, what's the, what's your best point of contact? Um, you know, on social media, you can find me on LinkedIn. I mean, that's where I do, you know, most of my connecting. I'm also on Twitter, um, but LinkedIn would be the best, but let me just keep it really simple. My email is vinny.demeglio at jll.com. Awesome. Vinny, thanks for hopping on the podcast. Gordon, I can't thank you enough, man. Thank you very much for the opportunity. This has been a real pleasure and I hope to do it again with you soon. Hey, the pleasure is all mine. Thanks, Vinny. You got it. Take care. Thanks again to Vinny. We appreciate his insights. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please give us a like, a five-star rating or review. Your comments, interactions, and subscriptions truly matter and help us continue to provide quality guests. You can follow us on YouTube, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Gordon Lamphere with The Real Finds Podcast. Thank you for listening.